0: Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God, our Father, from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text opens by saying, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And that phrase there, third day, is actually quite important. Now, we can think back some key third days, right? The days of creation. We have the third day of creation there. We have Abraham and Isaac on the third day. They see the mountain on which he's to sacrifice his son. Of course, we fast forward to Jesus himself on the third day, he rises again. And in between there, there's a lot of third days that help us flesh out why this is so significant in the Bible. An important one for our text today, I believe, is Exodus 19. This is the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. He shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him. He shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. And then Moses, later in Deuteronomy 5, recalling this event, says... Surely the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man, yet he still lives. So in Exodus 19, the Lord is making a covenant with his people, and he shows up to them to make that covenant on the third day. And we're told that on that third day, God's glory was manifested to the people. They saw his glory. Exodus 19, when they see his glory, though, they're terribly afraid. In fact, they're warned, you can only go so far lest you die. Now we know throughout the Bible, this covenant he made with them was very much a marriage-type covenant. So throughout the rest of the Bible, the Lord will call Israel his bride that he's made a covenant with. They are his, and he is theirs. In John chapter 2 we see all these signs of the new covenant. And it happens not on a mountain, not with thunder and lightning, not where the people are terrified, but it happens at a wedding feast. Weddings in the Bible often lasted up to like seven full days. I'm sure the Lewis family is better to provide wine for seven days last week. So what you would do is, right, you have wine, and you give them the good stuff early on so when they've had enough to drink then they don't care that you give them the bad stuff later and it's really embarrassing and it's shameful for the family to run out of that kind of stuff to not provide for your guests and that's exactly what happens but think of the context people are literally touching Jesus at this event Jesus is probably laughing and singing and dancing and hanging out and it's full of great joy There's not the terror that you had in the Old Testament on the mountain. As the new covenant comes, it's full of grace and truth. And that's what we hear not too far before this in John chapter 1. John tells us in that chapter, and of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And we heard that Deuteronomy 5 just a moment ago that Moses said, We have seen the day that God speaks with man and yet lives, and yet Moses said say, We haven't actually seen God. We heard in our reading from Exodus 33, he saw the backside of God. And now God is manifested in the flesh and they're receiving grace for grace. The only begotten Son, who has now been manifest in the flesh, is revealing God's glory in a different way. Now, it's interesting. We don't want to go too far with the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The point there is not there's no grace and truth in the Old Testament. That would be false, it would be a lie. But the point is, Moses was a servant, and those things came through him. In fact, we could translate in grace for grace, grace in place of grace. That's how the early church fathers took this. That one grace, the Torah given through Moses, was replaced with something better. And not through a servant, but through God in the flesh himself. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared to him and so this is all important for setting up what's going to happen at the wedding feast john's telling us that the types the pictures the shadows the images all those things the old testament now we're receiving the fullness of all those things grace for grace blessings in place of blessings gift in place of gift the fullness has come and it's better It's not that the old one was bad. It's that it wasn't complete. The fullness we have all received had not come yet. So the types, the shadows, all give way to the fulfillment of God coming in very flesh. Not working through a servant like Moses, but showing up to save and rescue and redeem his people in his own flesh. It's interesting here too, right? Because John, John uses a lot of imagery of light and darkness in, in chapter one as he's leading us to chapter two. Think back to what Paul says in Romans chapter five. Therefore, just as sin through one man entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sins. John understood that and he says, But now, now grace, grace is in the flesh. It's here. And it's coming to conquer sin, to conquer death. And the first thing Jesus does to show that this is taking place is he shows up at a wedding. That's not an accident either. Throughout the Old Testament, as I mentioned a moment ago, God is seen as the bridegroom and Israel as the bride. So Isaiah 54, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. In Ezekiel 16, we get a beautiful picture of this. As God finds Israel, and as she's all messed up, and he takes her, and he bathes her, and he clothes her, and he says, you are mine. In Hosea chapter 2, in Hosea chapter 1, he's told to marry this prostitute, and she cheats on him and leaves him. And throughout, God says, I'm going to betroth you to me forever. This is a picture of what you've done to me, but I'm going to betroth you to myself forever. I'm going to make things right. So Hosea will even go to the auction block, the slave block, and buy back Gomer, his wife. And the Lord says, take her home and treat her as your wife, as if nothing happens. It's a beautiful picture. Hosea 2, he says these words, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And so when Jesus shows up at a wedding party, he's not just there as a guest. He's there as the bridegroom coming to save and redeem his people. That's why his first miracle is at a wedding. In fact, this theme then carries through the next several chapters of John's gospel. So at the end of John 3, John the Baptist says, I'm the best man. He's the bridegroom. I must decrease. He must increase. Go to him. In the very next verses in chapter 4, Jesus says, it's necessary. It's necessary for me to go through here, and i got to stop at this well." Why? So we can meet a Samaritan woman. And why does he talk about that Samaritan woman? The fact that this woman has been married multiple times, and the man she's with now is not her husband. That's a beautiful picture, because what's happening is, Jesus is just declared to be the bridegroom, and now we see him searching for a bride, someone who's going to be a picture of what he's going to do for the church. So he shows up and talks to her. And she wants to hide her sins, and he says, No, I've come to give you life. If you know who you're talking to, you would ask me for a drink that would cause it so that you never thirsted again. And then what happens? She believes, she goes out and she tells everybody. Everyone in her town, and they all come out to Jesus, and he stays with them several more days. Theologically speaking those people that are converted, right, are the spiritual children of this conversation. The wedding produces joy. Christ has saved this woman, and all these people come to believe in him. And then John, to let us know that that was the point of these several chapters, John, at the end of chapter four, says kind of strangely, this happened in Cana, this next miracle would happen at Cana of Galilee, this healing that was going to take place where Jesus made the water wine. Now, why in the world would John have to mention, barely, not even two full chapters later, that Cana is where Jesus made the water wine, as if he forgot? Well, he bookends this entire section to let us know this is what it looks like when the bridegroom comes for his people. He comes to rescue and redeem them. He comes to save them. He comes to take women who have been cast off by society, and forgotten about, looked down upon, and he says, I've come for you too. He comes to bless even our marriages. He comes to save sinners. Now part of this imagery throughout the Bible is that Israel is constantly rejecting the Lord as their bridegroom. It's the only thing to do with him. He comes and he rescues them and they cast him off. They go after other gods. They worship them instead. So one of the things this imagery constantly puts before their minds and ours is the fact that we can reject our bridegroom. We can reject our rescue. We can reject this overflowing, abundant grace that he came to give us. He's come to rescue and redeem, but he's not going to force you to be faithful to him. So even in the New Testament, we see many of the Jews rejecting Christ. We see those who are converted to the faith rejecting Christ. That's kind of then why Mary plays the role she does in our reading today. A lot of people think when Jesus says, Woman, what does that have to do with me that Jesus is being harsh with her? He's being mean by saying woman. But the only other time Jesus calls Mary woman And all of the Gospels is in John 19 at the cross where he says to John, behold your mother. He says, woman, behold your son. See, all of the language here that Jesus uses is tied up with his death and resurrection on behalf of his brides. And Mary, as we saw not too long ago, I think just on Christmas Day we talked about this, the words she spoke let it be done to me according to your word. Here she says almost an identical thing. Whatever he says to you, do it. Which on Mount Sinai, that's what the people say. Whatever he tells us, we're going to do it. Mary then here becomes a beautiful picture for us of the church, of ourselves as Christians. How we should respond when Jesus speaks even if we're not quite sure what he's going to do yet. Mary tells the servants, look, I don't know what he's going to do but whatever he says, just you do that. You trust him. And so too for us. Rather than rejecting our bridegroom, rather than going after other gods, even when we don't know what he's up to or why he's up to it or what he's doing. Instead, instead, we hear the words of Mary, whatever he says to you, just do it. Trust him. He knows what he's going to do. And whatever it is, it'll be best. Do that. And what does he do? He makes 120 to 180 gallons of the best wine from water. It's no accident that these were purification pots that are symbolic then of, right, the Old Testament purification rituals that would have been handed down on Sinai and afterwards. Because he's come to make all things new. In in Amos chapter 9, we hear this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Joel chapter 4. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. That the mountains will drip with sweet wine and rivers will flow with it. Think about this. If you looked out here at the mountains and they were just running down with wine, the best wine. It was just flowing off them. They are just dripping with it. That would be kind of amazing. And yet, it was never supposed to literally happen as if God literally was going to send lots of wine down the mountains. It was a picture of his blessings and grace in the new covenants. So when Jesus shows up at the wedding feast, what does he do? He makes wine. To show that he is the source and fountain of all grace and goodness. That he gives so that's overflowing to the point that the mountains are dripping with it. That there's so much wine to go around that everyone has more than enough. Blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace, gift upon gift upon gifts. He came to give. To give his life. To give it abundantly. In John's gospel, the next time we hear about Jesus and wine is when they try to offer it to him on a cross. And then, right, he dies on that cross for us and our salvation. And they pierce his side, and John is very clear, blood and water flow out. The wine that the mountains drip with comes from the side of Christ our Lord's. It's his bloods. Coming to save and rescue and redeem you, to make you his church, his bride. So then, even as we have in this painting over here, the church has understood that very clearly that the blood that comes from his side is given to us in Holy Communion. Jesus didn't just show up to do some kind of party trick, to make it really cool that they had lots of good wine at their wedding that would have been great and all, but that wasn't the point. That would not have manifested his glory. It would not have shown fully who he was and what he came to do. He doesn't mean very specific to fulfill all the imagery of the Old Testament to show who he is and what he's come to do for you. And now today, he's still pouring out that grace. The mountains are still dripping with wine. It hasn't stopped. You receive it in your very mouths. And you hear this is Christ's body, or this is Christ's blood shed for you. And you drink it, receiving Christ's very blood with the wine. He hasn't stopped doing what he did at the wine at Cana. He's fulfilled it a million times over and keeps fulfilling it and keeps giving. That wine was just a small picture, a small foretaste of the greatness of the grace that he came to give you. So when you come to the table today, you come to a wedding feast. You come to celebrate the marriage feast of the Lamb that we hear about in the book of Revelation. It's quite interesting. If you take John and Revelation, you read them back to back. One of the first things you read in John's gospel is this miracle at the wedding in Canaan. One of the last things you read in John's revelation is that he sees the bride of Christ coming down from heaven. The whole story, John through revelation, is a story about the bridegroom rescuing us, his bride, the church. And all that he did for that to make that happen. And how he's still doing things to make that happen. He is good and loving and faithful and kind and he came to rescue and redeem you from your sins and he's still doing it. Now one of the things, and you see this a lot, our Lutheran fathers, one of the things all of them bring up every time this passage is mentioned is that one of the things it teaches us in addition to all that we've already heard is that Not only does Christ want to rescue us, his bride, the church, his people here, but he wants to bless your very home, your marriage. He wants to bless your family. Yes, Jesus actually did go to an actual wedding to do these things. He actually blessed real flesh and blood people at a real wedding, and he wants to do the same for you. He wants our homes to be places where grace is overflowing. Where our homes are dripping with the very wine of Jesus' grace. So Paul, picking up on this in Ephesians 5, he tells us that wives submit to their husbands as the church does to her lords, and husbands love their wives as Christ does for the church. And what does Christ do for the church? He sacrifices himself. Notice the language he uses here, which ties all of our passages together, even the one I read from Exodus 19. He says that Christ washed us with the water of the words and our holy baptisms, and that husbands do the same in their homes as they apply the word of God in their homes, as they use it in family devotions, as the family sing it together, that God is still washing your home with the water of the words. The difficult thing is, it's easy for our homes not to become places of grace, to become places where it's harsh and cruel and difficult for families. I know this, I'm a perfectionist. I demand a lot of myself, I demand a lot of others, which is not the best attribute for a dad or for a husband. And so we have to be constantly reminded, not just me, I don't think, but I think all of us, that our home should be a place where the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ drips. Where it's felt. Where you know that Jesus and his gifts are present there among our families. So that's what Jesus desires. For our homes to be a place of blessing. For homes to be a place where we come and gather together, And it's a shelter from the world outside. And we bless and pray for one another with God's holy words. Just like he did at that wedding feast. It's a beautiful thing, and that's what Christ wants for your home. He wants us to look at what he did for his church, and how the church responds to him, and he says... I want you to do this, not because I'm trying to put some ridiculous burden on you, but because I want your home to be a place of blessing and grace and mercy. That's what he wants for you. That's why Paul can't talk about wives and husbands without saying, of course, what I'm talking about is the mystery of Christ and his church. Our homes reflect that whether we want it to or not. A marriage reflects Christ and his church no matter what. Our prayers that will reflect it truly and beautifully. Our prayers that Jesus will show up, that will bless our homes, that will turn that which is ugly and sinful, that he'll remove that, that he'll cleanse that out, that he'll wash it out of our homes, and our homes will be built upon him and his holy words and all the grace found therein. You can't miss when you're traveling through the Bible and looking at this bridegroom imagery or in John chapter 2 or Ephesians chapter 5, whenever you have wedding imagery, there should always be this element of joy. God wants to bless us, and he wants us to be filled with the joy of the Lord. So here this morning he calls us, he says, come, everything's prepared. Come to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Come to the Holy Supper. Receive grace upon grace, receive grace in place of grace, receive blessing upon blessing, gift upon gift. Realize that the mountains are dripping with wine. That you receive the very body and blood of Christ, that you might be united to him, the bridegroom, who has come to rescue and redeem you. John chapter 2 should fill us with an overabundance of joy that God was manifest in the flesh and showed his glory in a way that we can see and handle and touch, as John will say in 1 John. We beheld his glory, even with our very hands. And so do we as we receive him now in the Holy Supper, as we receive him in word and Sacraments. Amen. Peace of God, pass on our saying, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.